bringing you up to speed on the latest in conservation, science, and responsible hunting in Canada. Hey everyone, it's Mark Hall, and you're listening to the Round Canada Podcast. All right, the first Around Canada podcast. Around Canada, look at that. I like that. Yes. New, new so podcast, a, artwork, new everything. New everything. So there's a there's a tiny subtle shift and I'm trying to I'm trying to figure out how to handle it. So the old podcast was called Round Canada. So it was mm-hmm. apostrophe round cuz they dropped uh, the a Is that how you guys say it in the British Columbia? Round like is that a, a colloquialism? Uh maybe like y'all uh, but it's a Canadian y thing. apostrophe a l l. Yeah, I was I was going to call it the 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 Canada A podcast. <laughs> That's, uh, but uh, yeah, it was already taken. But mm-hmm. but so so now going from apostrophe round Canada to around Queen's Canada English. to the Queen's English. Yes. So now uh, I'm not sure whether I've taken the initiative to change the intro for this podcast. I may down the road. But the intro, as you probably were just listening, folks, um, you know, it says, hey, everybody, it's Mark Hall, um, and you're listening to the Round Canada podcast. So it's like, sounds, did he say... Sounds around. Did he say around? Did he pronounce the A or not? <laughs> so I'm going to leave the leave it and see if people notice when, when I switch nah, from... Definitely re- leave it. Yeah. <laughs> They're just like, he doesn't enunciate his words very well, that Canadian guy. Uh, but no, I'm excited about this. Um, have you on the show? We've got a couple of uh, trending stories, one from Canada, one from Alaska, that are following on the same theme of animal culls and, and people. And one from Australia. Yes, that this fresh fresh off the off the Fresh the, off the wire. Uh, uh, fresh off the wire, so uh, we'll we'll throw that one into the mix. As well, I want to open with uh, with uh, I, I wouldn't say it's an issue. It was an, a concern that was brought up uh, last week um, during our inaugural launch of Blood Origins Canada. Had an amazing amount of people writing in that were so excited about the collaboration and the joint effort to create Blood Origins That's so Canada. Cool. That's um, so cool. Thanks so much to to everyone and and so what that is is it's people that were from Canada that were following us on the hunter conservationist because the Canadian content and also following you on blood origins because of your broader coverage of standing up for hunting world worldwide so it People were excited. Um, I, lo- I love that. I appreciate. Thanks, everybody. Uh, don't let that slip, folks. Like, keep writing into me and bringing up stories, and because uh, you know we'll just turn that in into content so that it's real uh, stuff that 100%. means something something to you, the followers. Uh, that's that's what we're after here, ultimately. So so uh, a listener wrote in from Saskatchewan. Congratulations. Love what Blood Origins does. Love what you do. Glad, glad to see you. Um, but they expressed a concern about one of Blood Origins um, Conservation Club members, supporters. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, 
land trust. So we'll get into that a little bit. Surprise, um, surprise. <laughs> so, so basically they're saying, please don't bring, now that you're Blood Origins Canada, please don't bring land trust to, to Canada. So I'll, I'll get you to dive into that in a second, but I'll give you a little, I'll give folks a little bit of a, a of a background. So this ultimately falls under the envelope of access to private land for hunting. It's mm-hmm. an issue in the United States. It's an issue in, in parts of Canada, uh, as it is in other places of the world. Uh, and then we'll talk a little bit about what Blood, Blood Origins does and does not do and what supporters and conservation club members mean. So, um, so <clears throat> just roughly, about 90% of all of Canada is public land, crown land. 90% that yeah. high, huh? Uh, as, as the nation as a, as a whole. Um, can I so, ask a question about that? If I know that a lot of people have, you get concessions, right? You get areas in public land in crown land that you can work in, right? You can outfit in. Yes. Does that, does that exclude everyone no. from that area? So public, no. if you are the member of the public, you can still go in there and hunt if you want. Yes, absolutely. So, Yes, in Br- British Columbia, uh, we have, they're called tenures, crown yep, tenures. Yep, and so yep. the government issues a tenure to an individual who then, via a contractor or, or, the, or the license, has the right to guide for a fee um, foreign hunters. But that is still public crown land and hunters are free free to, to, to go hunt there as well. So then it just becomes etiquette and ethics and mm-hmm. relationships and stuff so that people are not, you know, um, trying to go up the same trail at the same, the same time, you know, but, um, Alberta is a little bit different, uh, in the sense that outfitters can actually take their quota tags and go to different areas with their clients. They can have a few problems of, um, different guides with clients kind of showing up in the same area late in the season where the bighorn sheep show up. So, so it's a, it's a little different there, but Mm. if you're thinking like the African model of concessions and you know, it's, it's not like that. Very much open. Yep. Yep. And the same applies for forestry, for mining, for, uh, grazing and stuff the the uh, rec, you know, bear viewing backcountry, heli skiing. These are all, 10 years licenses that are issued to operators on crown land um but for the most part um public is still allowed to go and use them in some cases mines mining operations are legally allowed to like Mm -hmm. post no trespassing because Mm -hmm. of the the safety Mm -hmm. a heli ski operation might be able to do it because they do um active avalanche control and they can't have like snowmobilers willy-nilly going into their area but um yeah, yeah yeah that makes sense that makes complete sense the uh it just sounds like from a commercial perspective only one person it gets the commercial rights of an area but anybody that's public can access it and i would think that most of these places that have tenure tenure are probably quite inaccessible i would imagine mm, not necessarily um huh. you know so in the northern parts of the country, like let's just talk, say like uh, a hunting outfitter. In the northern parts of the country, uh, 
a lot of the outfitter operations are in wilderness areas. So their camps are in the middle of nowhere and it's float planes mm. uh, back and so forth. So tough to get to. In the Northwest Territories, they can the outfitters can legally use helicopters like New Zealand because they don't have the lakes um, that we have in the you know uh, south of the Northwest Territories for float plane access. So they're actually allowed to use rotary wing. So there's a situation where an outfitter um, is operating in large wilderness areas. You know, horse teams that may trail in. You know, like hundreds of miles kind of thing you know to, to, to get to different areas but resident hunters can still charter a plane uh, fly into the same lake and land on the beach beside the outfitters camp and head up a horse trail if they want there's no exclusive cool. rights in that way you come cool. into the southern part of say bc where i live um, and a trapper will have a license for an area that's logging roads, back like trails, they can have cross-country skiers and dog walkers and snowmobilers and cat hunters and stuff all, you know, in in their trap line in, in the wintertime. And so we do have a little bit of issues with that. So it varies. Um, but, you know, just so about roughly 90% of Canada is, is uh, crown crown land and but it varies so in, in british columbia and i think new brunswick we're around 94 to 95 percent of the province is public land where a small province like nova scotia 70 percent of that province is private land it is incredibly mm. difficult for hunters in nova scotia just like the midwest u.s when you hit our um our farm country of southern alberta southern saskatchewan and southern manitoba um, lots of private land. Um, Saskatchewan, southern Saskatchewan uh, is like 80% private land. Mm -hmm. So I'll just kind of stick a little bit with Saskatchewan because this is where the, the, the listeners' concern came from. So in Saskatchewan, trespassing laws uh, previously to a couple of years ago, if the land was private but it was unposted, hunters could freely hunt on private land. Just like Maine. Okay. Yep. Good. Good to know that that's some of that's like that in, in the U.S. as well. Then, uh, and the listener told me, because of hunter behavior, running fences over, leaving gates, shooting beside livestock, all, all this sort of stuff, it was like enough is enough. The Trespassing Act in Saskatchewan was changed. Hunters now have to have written permission to hunt on the land One so the same reasons why people leave public access programs in the united states and go a private leasing route okay because of hunter behavior hunter behavior now that hasn't it it's made it a uh like like the our, our follower said like it can understand it and actually supports you know some degree private landowners rights so it's not completely like saying this was was a terrible thing uh, but it is a bit more of a challenge for hunters obviously mm -hmm. you got to get your ducks in a row earlier in the year um, find that land that you've always freely hunted uh, who owns it and you've got to get written permission the Saskatchewan Wildlife Federation has created a um, it's called a hunter courtesy card so it's got all your personal information on it and the written permission can be signed on the back of a card. So it's a bit of a, 
uh, a goodwill liaison thing between the private landowner knowing who's on their land and legally the hunter has the written the written permission so so that that's kind of changed a little bit in Saskatchewan um, now the the issue of access to private land varies across the country uh, in Alberta it's illegal for a private landowner to charge for access to their land to hunt in Ontario it's legal Mm-hmm. So province by province, it is different on who gets to charge and who can't mm-hmm. by the law. Um, I've been told they try to, people get around the laws by saying, you well, you can rent my cabin for 900 bucks a week and, you know, that sort of gotcha. thing. But illegal's illegal and legal's legal. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, there is some, some good things going on in Canada where they recognize the importance of private land. Uh, governments and, and, and associations recognize how important access to private lands are. So, for example, in Alberta this spring, the Alberta Conservation Association, which is the, the non-government body that uses hunter fee dollars um, to do work for for wildlife. Um, they held a conference with a bunch of neighboring jurisdictions to understand different models of uh, uh, keeping hunter access on private land. The Manitoba government recently made a change to waterfowl hunter access to private land in Manitoba um, because of issues with uh, foreign interests um, and payment things locking up private land and yeah and baiting and pulling ducks onto private land and it was hurting resident hunter opportunity so the manitoba government realized the importance of private land british columbia it's illegal to have uh fenced hunting operations uh in alberta they kiboshed a high fence private land elk hunting proposal that was put forward by private landowners a few years ago so so there are some some initiatives going on in Canada to preserve or, or they're in the interest of hunters having access uh, to, to private land. Now, so I, I think that this is a bit of background, yeah. a bit of where the concern comes from. Uh, I'll get you to explain who Land Trust is and what, what they do. But the concern was coming from Saskatchewan with this trespassing law change to needing written permission, all of a sudden it's like, oh my God. If an organization is brought into Canada that is now um, like a profit-driven model of getting landowners signed and, and um, you know, booking hunts on private land, Saskatchewan hunters are like, oh my God, this could be like the nail in the coffin for mm-hmm. us. So, mm-hmm. Robbie, take it over from here, explain Blood Origins conservation club member supporter process who land trust is and your take on what we do and do not do (laughs) yeah i think that you know the the crux of the matter here to the to the commentator was the and this is where land trust has received most of the flack whether it's proven or unproven is that the opportunities for door knocking let's just say um the same thing as written permission in Saskatchewan would be diminished because that that landowner has seen that, oh, there is a potential for increased capital to be generated off his property. 
by essentially sticking his property in a marketplace. And that's what Land Trust has created. Land Trust create, created essentially the Airbnb for private hunting access. They provide you, the consumer, access to the landowner, just like an Airbnb. You get access through the Airbnb platform to the house. And then you talk with the house in terms of negotiating rates, you times, all that kind of stuff. That's exactly what Land Trust does. It's just created a marketplace. But the sensitivities around Land Trust is exactly to the commentator's point, is that are they diminishing opportunities that exist right now on private lands for door knocking, for permission, and locking it away for people then to pay to play? And if you don't have the money to pay to play, then you are essentially disadvantaged in that model. The answer is yes, yes, and yes. Okay. We at Blood Origins, number one, love the access of public ground. I'm a South African that is an American now that is blown away every single time I step foot on public ground. It's, it's the most amazing thing in the world. It's the very, very thing that is just amazing. And the fact that you have 90% of it in Canada is mind-blowing. Land trust doesn't hit public ground. Okay, that was one thing that got mentioned, even got mentioned on Joe Rogan's podcast. Joe Rogan and Cam Haynes messed that up even. They even said public, you know, land trust is pulling and, and locking away public ground. It's impossible. That's impossible. You can't, in Canada, think about it. A, a private company can't go and buy crown land or lease crown land and lock it away. We've already talked about this already. Um, and so it then comes down to the private landowner. And at the same time as understanding that there is a market for people to engage in private land hunting, there is a added, you know, there's added pressure with more and more hunters being on the landscape. So you're actually improving accessibility now by the pay to play model. Dare you say left, you know, you could say, well, they are limiting people. Yes and no. Door knocking has been, you know, limited for the last 10, 20 years. You know, I've been a hunter for the last 14, 15 years, and I've seen access go down. Not because of land trust. Land trust is two years old. <laughs> so it's the general sentiment across the board, right? You probably have seen the same thing. You probably hunted private, can't hunt it anymore. I, you know? One of the phenomenons that I've witnessed in that same time frame, especially right next door to me in Alberta, has been, and, and I think you've seen this in places in Colorado around Vail and Steamboat and, you know, all of these places, Durango. There was a period in North America where a lot of people had become very wealthy in the city. Uh, they reached, uh, probably boomers, reached an age where this wealth, uh, they had their homes, they had their cars, they were reaching out for the country, acreages their weekend away places and they had the ability to buy up large tracts of land. Mm -hmm. So in Southern Alberta, a lot of the big multi-generational farm mm -hmm. acreages were being bought up by incredibly wealthy Calgarians who made their fortunes in the oil industry. That's their play area. They're urbanites that have bought these large, you know, uh, hobby farms now. And they're like, that's it. Stay yeah, off of any, our land. And any hunting access that used to be there is no longer there. Is gone. Yep. Yep. So, the, you know, from a land trust perspective, there's also the negative side. 
in that if land trust is actively targeting, especially in the United States, actively targeting people who have their land in public access programs, that's not cool. That's not good. And we've had a straightforward conversation with the CEO about it. Like, are you actively targeting these individuals? And his answer was no. Does a marketing email from Land Trust hit these landowners' email inbox time to time? Of course. But they're blanketing emails across the board, not specifically saying, okay, let's find the people that are in the block management program and actively you know, go after them. The last thing we'll say is that we are also very staunch advocates of private land rights. And if I own land, if Mark owns land, and I want to do X, Y, and Z with the land within the legal bounds that I can do it in, you have full rights to do that. You, it's your land. So I say that to say, you can go back and you can listen to all sorts of podcasts about land trust with us. Um, we, we do not advocate for land trust. We do not advertise for land trust. A land trust is a supporter of Blood Origins through the Conservation Club. And so what does that mean? People have accused us. Oh, you, the, that means you, they're in, we're in their pocket, i.e. we say what we should say to promote land trust. Well, you've just heard me say something negative about land trust. <laughs> so that is not the model. Our model is this. You like what we do at Blood Origins. You like what we do at Blood Origins Canada now, right? You want us to do more of it. You want us to go to the horizon and grow our voice and grow our advocacy for the narrative of who hunters are and what hunting is doing for wildlife, for people, for communities all around the world. Is that correct or incorrect? To the brand, to Elantris. Yes, we like what you do. Well, then support us. At whatever level you want to support us at, 25 bucks a month all the way to 1500 a month. And that's what Land Trust decided to do. They decided to get behind us. There is no advertising. There's no us talking about it, except on a podcast when controversy comes up. That's it. That is our model. That's the model of the Conservation Club. It's people who recognize the value of what we bring to the table and say, we want you to do more of it. Plain and simple. Yeah. <clears throat> and... You know, the message that I um, conveyed back to, you know, our follower on, on this topic was, you know, the similar things. We're not, you know, representatives. We're not um, ambassadors for um, the companies that are in our conservation club. Uh, they are saying, we like your message and we're going to get um, behind 100%. you. <clears throat> yep. If you think about uh, even just land trust, they're business model and what they do depends on the greater issue of hunting actually existing in North America. Mm -hmm. If state by state and province by province at some point in the future they were to ban it, it's a, it's a you know, uh, the wildlife is publicly owned in, in both countries other than, you know, a few things with the exotics and in Texas and stuff. So if a government said <clears throat> it is now illegal to hunt in the province than any type of business model uh, free or for-profit of a private land hunting operation it's gone too because hunting itself is now prohibited so they're an organization that's behind a pro-hunting message of blood origins and that is part of you know their agenda and, and of course our agenda 
the other thing that I conveyed is I've always looked at my job in Canada um, in, in part. I'm standing up for hunting uh, and hunting families in this country. Our cultures, our laws, the nuances of this are so diverse in this country, second largest country in the world, largest um, shoreline in the world. Um, it's not my job to say this is what Canadian hunters should do or shouldn't do. My my job is to understand as best as I can issues in both sides and all the sides and to understand the nuance of moose hunting in the Yukon versus moose hunting in New Brunswick. And first of all, try to understand that so that I can convey messages, uh, you know, uh, about that. But at the end of the day, I always want to be able to speak the truth about what's in the heart of a moose hunter in New Brunswick, what's in the heart of a, of a moose hunting family in the Yukon, and, mm-hmm. and have that come out. It's not my take on moose hunting in New Brunswick, but it's like, what does it mean to a New Brunswick family, to a New Brunswick hunter? And then I want to amplify, you know, that message. So if I get something wrong... And I have in the past, people write into me and, hey, that might be what they do on the West Coast in British Columbia, but that is not how things happen in Northern Ontario. <laughs> and I'm like, thank you. I have learned something about the exactly. hunting culture in our country. Feel free to correct me if my interpretation or representation of hunting and hunters in Canada uh, is incorrect, because at the end of the day, I want to amplify what's in your heart, what's of meaning to you, so that the more Canadians and more people in the world understand the consequences of hunting in your area. So don't ever, ever feel that my take, my perspective, my op-ed or my level of or lack of understanding of an issue in the country is what I'm trying to impose on people. So Agreed. Cool. Um, this is Around Canada, Around Canada episode. Uh, so we have a couple of uh, trending stories to talk about. In they're, they're, they're weaved together under the auspices of the thread of culling animals for conservation, for wildlife management. Uh, one's in Canada, uh, one's in uh, Alaska, and I do occasionally cover stories that are, that are outside the country because people see about them in the news and they're interested so we have an Alaskan story and maybe we'll touch on this Australian one so the first story comes out of BC on the Gulf Islands on the west coast there is an island called Sydney Island Uh, it has a national park uh, federal park that's managed by Parks Canada Uh, it's it's small but they have fallow deer on the island they're exotics. The native deer species on the coast is the blacktail, the Columbia blacktail deer. Uh, the fallow deer are are exotics. Whether you want to say they're invasive or not, but they're not native. Uh, from what I understand, they were brought into the islands for the purpose of hunting. Um, mm-hmm. Back in the 1930s, 20s and 30s by the BC Game Commission, they actually brought eastern wild turkeys from West Virginia and put them onto the island there as well. So, uh, and I think, I don't think anybody's done any genetic studies, but I think there's remnants of those Easterns still on some of those islands. Parks Canada has taken a like $6 million multi-year 
ecosystem restoration project. Jeez, to... I want that contract, my friend. Five point oh, nine million goodness. ecosystem contract. Holy <laughs> smokes! That, well, that yeah, that's uh, that's why we pay pay a lot of taxes in Canada. So, it's it's a it's an ecosystem restoration project on Sydney Island in the park to restore the Douglas fir coastal ecosystem. One of the issues that's been identified is these fallow deer, uh, apparently numbers between three and 900 of them eat everything. And so plant Eating communities- plant, out plant of community, house and home. Yes. So part of restoring the Douglas fir ecosystem, the plant communities that you know, we're in the understory of Douglas fir forest and the regeneration of Douglas fir trees themselves to perpetuate the old growth forest. The fallow deer are a roadblock. So uh, the federal government has said, we are going to cull these deer. There was some public sessions about it. And of course, uh, there's people that are for it. There's people that are against it. Uh, First Nations uh, whose territories cover the island are uh, advocates for removing the deer because of the impacts to traditional plants and their ability to collect um, food plants. Then people that live on the island that like the cute little deer don't want them culled. Uh, hunters want into the picture to maybe be part of the management solution, but the direction that the federal government has gone is with sharpshooters. So the plan is a 10-day um, for professional sharpshooters, mostly using helicopters, and they're going to try to eradicate the um, the deer. Of which this is kind of doesn't sit well with me. Is a deer is a deer is a deer in this cull. So if it happens to be one of the native black-tailed deer, it's going to get killed, and they are going to keep going till there's no deer standing. Both species. Um, Parks Canada has said, um, yes, uh, they may eradicate the native black-tailed deer population, but they believe that the population will recover. And it's like, well, the fallow deer will probably recover as well. So, You think they will? Because they wouldn't have a source population from somewhere else. Source, you know, the Canada found, what, what Government Canada is saying is that, you know, blacktail will swim across um repopulate reconstitute the island the population okay. will take some time to get there and i think if there's no source deer population for fallow anywhere close by if there's not like an island next door that has fallow or the mainland had fallow i think they'll be successful um but i get yeah, it. like I, I get the fact that you're losing all of your pet deer that's sitting in your backyard you know yeah and, and then of course just the straight outright um animal welfare issue comes up it's just doesn't matter um a living thing is a living thing and you know culling it to get rid of it or or increasing it so that we can kill it and eat it is just morally wrong so that's that's part of the part of the argument uh, and I, I started doing a little bit of research on this and this whole issue rubs hunters the wrong way in north america when there is a a, a management need to significantly reduce a deer population. Um, hunters are like, hey, that's what we are. Everybody says hunting is always a management tool. Let us take care of it for you. Not just in North America. It is the issue for any any invasive non-native species anywhere in the world. New Zealand world, and Australia are, happens like, every, you know, right now it's happening in Tasmania for fallow deer as well. 
Oh, okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And I mean, geez, in the New Zealand model, they're actually like poisoning um, well, Australia some of as the well. animals. 1080. Oh, very gosh. controversial. Very. You, we should do an entire podcast on 1080. Oh, because yeah. you actually have both sides of the coin in the hunting fraternity that say it's good and others say it's terrible. Okay. It is a horrible way for an animal to die. I know they use it um, for wolves in northern Alberta. So, you know, basically, I so I did a little bit of research in into this whole thing of like sharpshooters versus hunting. And there is both scientific studies and there is stuff written in the popular literature about it. There is a very interesting case, relatively recent, um, comparing the the approach to chronic wasting disease control in Illinois and Wisconsin. So they border each other. They both ended up with chronic wasting disease. The prevalence rate started to increase. Both governments brought in professional culling team sharpshooters. Uh, they started to go at the deer population. Hunters were upset because they're like, let us be the management tool. The political pressure in Wisconsin won the day and the sharpshooting contracts were revoked. Illinois kept going at it. After a few years, and they, there's actually a scientific study on this, the prevalence rate in Wisconsin climbed and climbed and climbed surprise, and went through surprise. the roof. Surprise, Illinois, surprise. to this day, my understanding is, is they're keeping it at background levels in the population. What they found was in Illinois that hunter harvest did not suffer because the government was using contract sharpshooters so the fear of there will be no deer for us come hunting season did not actually manifest itself uh in in illinois so that's a that's an interesting you know scientific study that was that was done comparing you know um the the, the sharpshooters i think i'd also there was another study done that said for whatever reason we know there's no visible signs of chronic wasting disease in a deer but sharpshooter's ability to pick a deer out that it was actually confirmed positive versus a hunter was like 11% of the deer that sharpshooters killed were positive CWD. Uh, hunters, it was only like 4%. I'm just vaguely mm. trying to remember the mm. numbers. So, Yeah, it's an interesting... There's another study, and I'll have to look for it, but there's another study that compared sort of contractual mechanisms. I think it was done in Australia. Contractual mechanisms to reduce deer populations versus giving the contract like Wisconsin did over to recreational hunters mm. and how successful they were in the operation in hitting the management goal. And like in the contracted, in the contracted mechanisms, it was like 86% to 90% successful. And in the hunter led roles, it was like 33% successful, Okay, which speaks to the exact issue here. And this is maybe controversial from my perspective, but management is needed. And hunting cannot operate on a level when management is needed because of this specific fact. If you're not getting paid to get up early, go sit in the cold and take as many deer as possible and then go retrieve the deer, pull the deer out, do something with the deer, you're not going to do it. You're not going to do it, Mark. I'm not going to do it. Yeah. Something's yeah. going to get in the way. Oh, I had little Johnny's recital at school today. I couldn't go take the deer that I needed today. 
<laughs> that I'm, I don't mean to be crass about it, but that is the end. That is the be all and end all of the difference between a professional reduction in wildlife and a recreational reduction yes. in wildlife. Yes. Professional versus recreational. Recreational, there is no, you know, do what you want, and you you have no control over people. Sure, a little cooperative could get together and do really good work, but that is very, very rare. Yeah. We did a podcast, uh, Curtis and I did a few years ago, with the whitetail biologist for the DNR in Michigan. And in the ag zone in Michigan, the state wants deer populations reduced, and you're allowed, I think, 10 or 11 doe tags and then you can have like two buck tags in the zones more in the north. And he said, nobody shoots that many deer because after a couple, you're like, that's actually it. a fair bit of meat. And then it's like, now it's just killing. It's a lot mm -hmm. of time to process a deer, yada, yada. And it's like, he said, nobody, oh, you have nobody to find goes out and kills 10 whitetails. You have to go find people to get the deer, take the deer to process the deer, time and money. Yep. One article that I read, um, and this kind of speaks to the, you know, the job versus just going out recreationally, is this was a Wisconsin um, cull, uh, white-tailed deer kind of in a, in a suburban area. So four sharpshooters killed 45 deer in three hours. Hmm. In the nighttime... Uh, loaded them all up in trailers. There's no dealing with them on the ground. Huge mm -hmm. pile of deer on a trailer. They were trucked out in the middle of the night, you know, to a processing facility and stuff. And and the author that wrote the article basically said, you know, um, they've been involved in, in sharpshooting culling operations. And they said there's nothing about those operations that, that resemble, you know, recreational hunting. So it sounds yeah. fun, but it's it's an industrial kill yeah yeah and managers want it done as many deer as short a possible time um they're using bullets that f that bust apart really easily headshots because they don't want you know projectiles right. you know traveling right. along the other interesting thing i learned about comparing like hunting to the use of sharpshooters like i said it doesn't sit well uh, the bc wildlife federation in, here in bc has written a letter to government opposing um, the sharpshooter cull is uh, so a couple of studies that have been done showed that if you use controlled hunts to 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 do the deer management um, the significant reductions hunters educate the deer and the deer in studies have been known to expand their home range. They go to refuges, they get pushed around, and it becomes more difficult later on in the controlled hunts to bring in sharpshooters to then take out the remaining deer because hunters have essentially educated and pushed the deer. We heard the same thing with invasive pigs, why the scientists don't support hunting as a management tool because we're actually just causing them to spread. In a similar study, radio collar deer that were subject to professional sharpshooters after the culling operation did not expand their home range. They were very unaware of what was actually going on. Um, so that's kind of an issue if you want to get the most amount of deer in the shortest part, you know, possible, possible time. So, um, yeah, you know, I, you know, I could see, I can see, you know, 
the BC Wildlife Federation saying, no, we don't want to do this. Um, it's the BC Wildlife Federation, right? Yes, it was. Yeah. Yeah. Penned a letter. Are they pro hunting? Oh, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. This yeah, is yeah. Our, our our main body in British Columbia oh, that okay, represents okay, okay. hunting interests. Yeah. It's not like, okay, that makes sense. Um, no, it's not like the I, Animal I, Alliance I, or Humane Society. <laughs> on it, so but no, I can get why not. they would be opposed to it. I could, I could see why they're opposed to it. Um, so, maybe, you know, and at that stage, you know, it becomes a little bit more logistically challenging. Impossible, no. Improbable, yes. But could you, before the cull happens, you know, open a limited entry, limited quota, hunt, 10 hunters get picked, take as many deer as you can in two days, have your opportunity, pull out, and then let's get the job done. Yeah. Because the vegetation looks terrible. The photograph in that article, like you've got a problem when your your exclusion fence has... 10 foot 12 foot high trees at a high high density and outside the fence it is a mown dirt lawn so i've i've got a little bit of concerns with that that picture comparing that because if you had peak black-tailed deer populations you would probably see a similar thing We've done research studies in the Rocky Mountains where I live in southeastern BC where they've put high-fenced enclosures around areas to study the effects of grazing uh, ungulates and cattle inside and outside exclosure areas. And exactly the same thing happens when elk can't get at the vegetation to browse it. it it's just this thick, thick mm-hmm. um, aspen forest inside a inside an enclosure. So I, that phenomenon happens with native herbivores, you, you know, as well. But yeah, but um, it wouldn't be to that extent, though. You, especially on an island, you would think that it. it let's just, just let's let's play devil's advocate for a second. Take the fallow deer out, native blacktail. If the native blacktail are doing exactly what that picture says, then you've got a na- native blacktail population problem. Yes. That you would need to cull as well. You'd have to maintain, you'd have to manage to balance that system. And and if you were managing, like, let's just say you were like the gamekeeper model uh, and you were managing that fallow deer population for hunting, you'd want to grow, you know, big stags. That's right. You know, nice architecture. You'd be working with genetics. You'd be working with uh, competition, carrying capacity. You would be doing some culls you know in between you know your paid hunts and stuff like that you may have kept the deer population to under 200 instead of Mm -hmm. 900 you would probably Mm -hmm. see a balanced ecosystem and an exotic that was being managed for um you know selective hunting purposes on on the island but it's just been it's a feral population and and um now the choice is is get rid of them all so yeah interesting story uh but it, it's one that's echoed all over the world it just tends to rub people the wrong way um oh no all right definitely. the alaska story so there was a government-led call in alaska uh in one of the management units this spring where they killed almost a hundred brown bears Towels, mm. cubs, anything that they could from aerial shooting. Um, and that 
hit the news like the proverbial uh you know what uh it was it was around uh so it was the Mulchatna caribou herd which in the 1990s i read was uh, about 200,000 strong um it was like 2021 was, now uh just under 13 and wow. biologists are saying that predation is a major cause of they're trying to get the population stabilized between 30 and 80 um, but predation is limiting that so they undertook this aerial bear call uh, it did not go well <laughs> in the media now there's a couple of a couple of lawsuits so crazy what so are your crazy. thoughts about that one well just the fact that lawsuits are needed lawsuits are used right now to just stop anything that someone just has a, a differing difference of opinion around is unbelievable right if the data shows that predation is an issue predation is the leading cause of this caribou herd and i think i texted this to you when you sent me the article i said what are they saying with the lawsuit the thing that I hear them saying is we value grizzly bear lives over caribou lives. Plain and simple. We don't give a stuff that the caribou herd will go extinct. We just care about the cuddly grizzly bears. Yeah, because in that article, there were pictures of the um, the bear viewing platforms and like, you know, the, the bear viewing industry and how important that is to Alaskans and ecotourism stuff. It's exactly it wasn't that people wanted to go out and bug infested swamplands and see a caribou going by on a on a far ridge they wanted to uh, they want to see bears yeah and look and i get the like I'll, I'll put the foot the the shoe on the other foot for a second and we talk about value right value if it's if it pays it stays yeah um do grizzly bear does tourism around grizzly bears pay more than tourism around caribous probably does probably exponentially different um but again there's a balance to be had and you know from 200,000 to 13,000 doesn't sound like a balance um and so forget hunting forget even hunting of the caribou herd period if you have a, an out of whack balanced ecosystem that is probably driven you know for the most for some in in some part due to anthropomorphic you know issues and concerns then you've got to step in and you've got to 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 manage it now let mother nature take its course is probably what you're you're going to hear out of the anti-hunting or anti-management camp okay fine caribou will dwindle down to a couple of thousand maybe a couple of hundred grizzly bear will not have any more resources to maintain the population that they're at mass die-off of grizzlies caribou would return and you've got this boom bust cycle that mother nature loves and society would have to accept that yeah yeah and you know the bears that you know as they said in the article there's you know there's common bears that are constantly seen every year on the river from a viewing perspective and those bears are no longer there you know hypo yeah. the hypothesis is that they got shot by the skull okay yeah maybe Maybe they got taken out by another grizzly. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's two points to that that, you know, that I'll talk to. One is about it pays, it stays. One, I've, I've always advocated against the, well, viewing pays more so you don't need hunting. That's the argument with grizzly bear hunting in British Columbia. 
And I'm like, if you look at the ideology of what that argument says, then wildlife viewing is out, hunting is out, fishing is out, and we should endorse resource extraction because hectare for hectare, mining makes more money off the land than any of those other things. So mm. don't worry about what happens to an animal or a fish population if you're worried about maximizing the most amount of money from the fewest number of industries. I'm of the mindset that economically, a society that has multiple ways of families generating their incomes is going to be more stable because you don't have like all your eggs in one basket. So yes, viewing, yes, hunting, yes, natural resource extraction. 100% um, yes to it all, right? It's the same model. Honestly, you just depicted the same model for elephants in Botswana. There's certain areas in Botswana, certain areas in Alaska that are beneficial from a pay it plays model to be ecotourism areas and would make far and above more money than any hunting operation would. But then there's vast tracts beyond the curtain, beyond the place that any ecotourism operator wants to go or any ecotourist wants to go that could facilitate a pay-to-stay model for grizzly bear or caribou that works very well together harmoniously together yeah yeah and and i think the other point here is and and i don't know exactly um the science that the biologists are working off in the alaska model but looking at the caribou wolf call issue and British Columbia and Northern Alberta is other things generally land use decisions have driven these caribou to incredibly low numbers we don't want them to blink out everybody in society wants caribou on the landscape but mm. we're at a point now where their numbers are so low predator numbers are high the predators become the limiting factor to recover populations it's yep. not likely that brown bears in Alaska drove that herd from 200,000 to 12,000 over the last couple of decades. It's probably um, roads factors. and mining yep. and oil and gas exploration and impacts to calving grounds, but they're at a point now where the bears are the thing that keeps calf survival low. So biologists are going, here's where we're at today. If we don't do something about this, we're never going to save or, or restore caribou. So the... The other side of it typically portrays the argument of, well, the bears aren't the ones that cause the population decline, so why are you, you know, um, um, making the bear the scapegoat? And it's like, they're not the scapegoat. Right now, they're the limiting factor that managers have no choice. So I'm not sure if that's the case in Alaska. I know it is here and uh, with our endangered caribou and wolf population. So mm -hmm. interesting. Any final thoughts on the, uh, the wild horse cull? Well, same in. thing as we just talked about. We just talked about, <clears throat> you know, take off, you know, replace fallow deer with brumbies, wild horses in Australia. Replace grizzly bears with wild horses in Australia. You've got exactly the same situation happening. You just, you know, native plants, native diversity are all being impacted by this non-native species. It just happened to be a hard-hoofed animal that has quite an impact on the ground from an erosion perspective, plant perspective, is a generalist browser and grazer. And um, yeah, they've got an issue. They've got a serious, <laughs> a 
they've got a serious horse problem in the Kosciuszko National Park and um, they are in, you know advocating a cull and unbelievably the Greens which is a very strong political party in Australia who is very much anti-hunting agree with the cull yeah that was the big one I saw on social media uh, off of Twitter or X um, all these people that were like, good, it's about time, you know, mm-hmm. get, get rid of them all. And I was so shocked because that's the opposite of the first two stories that we covered in the, in the, in the general, um, public sentiment. So, and they're talking like tens of thousands of animals, horses. The interesting thing I did glean off of that one, which may be the lesson learned is the Australia, New South Wales government is planning a professional sharpshooter cull, a trapping program for relocation, rehoming wild horses, and hunter-led effort. So they've kind of got everybody involved rather than cutting hunters out of the picture. So I thought that was interesting. Well, I, you know, it'll be... They, look, there's a, bunch of, there's a bunch of Australian rednecks out there that would be happy to go in and hunt a brumpy, hunt a horse, <laughs> but not yeah. many. Yeah, okay. Would you cool. hunt a horse? Would I? Maybe. I if, don't know uh, if I could, man. Like if I knew it was, I was doing it purely if from I knew, a if I was just perspective. Meat and I didn't get a deer or a moose. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't I want 80 it. of them. But one, sure. Yeah. Why not? Jeez, had- I, would, I was about to say something, but we've already been controversial enough throughout this entire podcast. <laughs> so I'd rather leave it alone. Okay, that, uh, we'll uh, we'll 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 text back and forth what it was, and maybe we'll put it on another show. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Robbie, thanks for coming on uh, our first Around Canada podcast under the Blood Origins banner. Thank you so much. Look forward no, to more. No man, it's epic. Yeah, I look forward to more. And uh, anytime uh, I can be of service to debate any issues in Canada, happy to jump on. Absolutely. Thanks very much. And hey, folks. Bye, boss. E- You're up to date on what's going on around Canada. We'll see you in the next episode.